Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Streming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. Hey, everybody. I'm going to talk today about reinforcement. And I'm going to focus primarily on positive reinforcement, although there are going to be threads of negative reinforcement involved in here. The primary thing that I want to talk about is kind of what I see as a baseline misunderstanding in my clientele, um, sometimes in other colleagues, certainly in a lot of just average pet owners. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what reinforcement is and also how it works. The definition of reinforcement is the process of strengthening. So an action or process of strengthening. So anything that strengthens behavior, because behavior is the context in which we're talking, anything that strengthens behavior is reinforcement. So it's not about cookies and it's not about toys and it's not about petting and praise. It's about what strengthens behavior, which is sometimes cookies and toys and petting and praise. But what's important to us here is what strengthens behavior is what we want to pay attention to. We misunderstand this process, I think, largely because we don't live in a reinforcement-based society. We live in a punishment-based society. So a lot of things are taught through punishment uh, or attempted to be taught through punishment. A lot of kind of quote-unquote lessons are taught through punishment. We have, I think, as individuals, a better understanding usually of the application of punishment than of reinforcement. It takes wild innovation sometimes to train or change behavior using reinforcement when on the flip side if we are not using our the top of our intelligence which is a phrase I recently learned which I like if we're not using that we might lean harder on punishment to try to suppress uh, behaviors and just on the note of definitions. Punishment, of course, is anything that decreases a behavior. So it's that other thing. And today we're talking about reinforcement. So reinforcement is just, it's so much bigger than cookies or marker signals or any of that stuff that we've learned about. So I'm going to go through some of what I think the misunderstandings are and how we can work around them and give some examples. So first of all, a misunderstanding that I see is that the reality is that all behaviors in what I'm going to call a reward sequence are paid or reinforced. So what that means is that anything the dog is doing while acquiring reinforcement is being reinforced, not just sometimes the behavior you intended to reinforce. Okay, so where the misunderstanding lies here is in what is being reinforced at what time. So for instance, I sometimes recommend that people throw food at their dogs if their dogs are barking at something outside the window. And in my career so far, I've not had window barking increase from this which means that window barking isn't what's being reinforced, 
But this confuses people. They assume that we must be rewarding the window barking if we throw food when the window barking occurs. And I believe that the reason that we don't is because of the other behaviors in the reward sequence that are being reinforced instead. The barking ceases. The dog leaves the window. The dog probably forgets all about what they were barking at and they eat the food. So forgetting about what you were barking at and leaving the window is part of that reward sequence and is getting reinforced. So the misunderstanding would be that if I deliver food right when this thing happens, I will reinforce that thing. And while that might be a decent hypothesis, when the result is completely different from that, then you know that that's not what's actually happening. And I have a few more examples of that. So all behaviors in a reward sequence are reinforced, for instance, if I reach my hand into my treat pouch to feed my dog. So let's say I have marked a behavior, like I've clicked something the dog has just done, and then I reach into my treat pouch, and as I'm doing so, my dog comes up and nose punches my hand that is inside the treat pouch. And of course, my dogs would never do this. I've never experienced this in my life. Read my sarcasm. That motion towards me and nose punching of my hand is part of the reward sequence. So if I intelligently use that marker signal, I'm probably reinforcing the thing that I marked, but I'm also reinforcing motion towards me and muzzle punching of my hand. So if I don't want all of that stuff, I'm going to want to reward differently so that I'm reinforcing maybe only the behavior that I marked. A really common example in dog agility might be leaping up onto the handler with feet to grab the tug toy. And again, y'all, if this isn't a problem, it's not a problem, right? If the jumping up on the handler is counter to what you're trying to train, for instance, I might be trying to train a motion forward, kind of focus forward exercise, like finish the weave pulls, then take the jump in front of you. But the dog comes out of the weave pulls and comes at me and puts his feet on me. I am reinforcing leaving the pulls, coming to me, putting feet on me. And I have seen so many dogs in competitions leave the weave poles, run to the handler, put feet on the handler when no marker has occurred. There's not even reinforcers available, meaning food or toys on the course, but you have inadvertently trained that into your sequence, into your behavior sequence, because it was part of your reward sequence. Another one might be just running off with the toy. So grabbing the toy and running around again, not a problem if it's not a problem, but it could be. So it's all of that stuff is being reinforced because it's part of that reward acquisition. So we want to pay attention to that all of the time. We think that our marker signal buys us a pass. Like we believe that if we marked when the dog did whatever it was that we're after, that everything that happens between the end of that marker and the reward acquisition is, I don't know, no man's land, like nothing is happening, nothing is getting paid, nothing is being rewarded or punished in there. And that's not true. It's all being reinforced. It's just that the reinforcement sequence begins at the marker. So if we back up to the case of the barking at the window, if I clicked when the dogs are barking at the window, I might run the risk then of reinforcing barking at the window because then my reward sequence should start then when I mark getting a little bit convoluted here. So I'm going to come back to my next misunderstanding that I think is common. People have a hard time realizing that punishing or correcting post reward acquisition 
is futile. So let me give you an example. Let's say the dog uh, runs off down the trail after a squirrel, fails recall, maybe rips a leash out of your hand, whatever, and you go up to them, you scold them, you put their leash on, and you walk them on leash back to the car. If the dog already got to chase the squirrel, whatever you did after that doesn't matter because reinforcement was already accessed. Same deal if you know the dog jumps all over you and gets gets kind of access to you access to your face and you like knee them in the chest or yell at them or smack them or anything nasty like that they already accessed the reinforcer they already accessed a tent contact with you which is all they wanted so you will fail to you will likely fail to punish that behavior because the reinforcement has already been acquired so it's kind of like if I reach my hand into, this is getting ridiculous, but let's say I just really quickly snatch a $100 bill off of a super hot surface of some kind, and I am now burned, but I have that 100 The burn doesn't take away from the fact that I scored the 100 So punishing post-reward acquisition is futile. In agility, another agility example, if the dog, if you've got a, say, a leash hanging out on the start line or on the sidelines, and the dog likes to grab the leash and play tug on it, and the dog leaves work to go grab the leash, and that's not what you meant, like you meant for the dog to stay with you and have the toy that you have, or stay with you and have food, or stay with you and keep sequencing, but the dog leaves work and takes that leash. If you go over there and take the leash out of their mouth and put it back where it goes and take them back out onto the course, you leaving the work to get the leash still got paid, even though you went and attempted to correct that situation after that reward acquisition. So if reward acquisition occurs, Anything you do after that is pretty futile if that wasn't what you wanted the dog to acquire. And so this is where um, one of my phrases is, you know, I give my clients what I call get out of dodge strategies for whatever the behavior is that they're trying to avoid. If that behavior does pop up, I give them a get out of dodge strategy. So for instance, we're working on leash reactivity and the dog finds itself in a scenario that it can't handle and it starts having a reaction. We have get out of dodge strategies for removing the dog from the scenario But if that occurs, if the dog barks and lunges at the other dog and then gets the other dog to go away because you removed them because you employed your get out of dodge procedure, then that reinforcement was acquired and anything you do after that is futile. And so what is primarily important is not knowing how to get out of dodge. What's primarily important is staying out of dodge in the first place. So the next thing that I find um, is misunderstood is that subtle access to reinforcement is the PhD level dog training, like subtle access to what the dog actually wants rather than what I'm gonna call contrived access to what the dog wants is really the ticket. It is the big show. That is the the good stuff in behavior management in households and, and, re, and in real life. So versus training like a sit, stay and release at a door I might just casually open the door when the dog's doing what I want them to do, but I haven't asked them to do it. So I'm going to just catch the dog doing the right thing and deliver a reinforcer that I know the dog is interested in. So subtle access to desired resources when behavior is neutral or like non-anticipatory, 
versus cued or contrived is something that if you master that, you will master household management, you will master kind of life skills dog training. It absolutely comes into play in sports training too, yet another level of education. So learning it first in real life, I think is arguably more important and certainly I think a little bit easier to do versus if I'm running an agility sequence and my dog, you know, if I recognize that jumping is expensive for this dog, but an A-frame is cheap, so the dog loves the A-frame, but jumping's a little bit hard. I'm gonna strategically design my training courses so that jumping efforts are rewarded by the A-frame. So that is subtle access to reinforcement that is not, you know, me saying to the dog, jump, and then immediately saying to the dog, now climb the A-frame. It is just, that is how I have manipulated the setup to just happen kind of naturally and feel natural to the dog. Because you know what dogs are amazing at? They are masters at knowing when you're being fake and when you're being real. And they're masters at knowing what you're gonna do next and what you're not gonna do. They're so, so good at figuring us out. If we had half their skill at figuring them out, like I'd be out of a job. Like we would be so much better at this. So think about subtle access to desired resources. When behavior is not necessarily aiming to get those resources, right? So like if my dog wants to grab a tunnel and on the agility course and that's all he can think about, I am never going to put him in that tunnel. Versus if I see him beautifully respond to his name cue, turn, come to me, then I am going to kind of complete the loop I'm on and send him for that tunnel. And then in real life... I know we're getting close to dinner time. Dinner time is very important to especially my older dog, Iggy, but she's teaching my younger dog, Rhea, that it's a very important time of day. And my dogs are like pacing around and they can't settle and they're like, oh my gosh, when's dinner going to be? Or worse, they're barking at me or bugging me for dinner. Like that's not when dinner's going to happen. But what I could do and what I have done is wait for a time when they're not anticipating dinner at all, like it's two hours early and go feed dinner. Or if they started fussing in the first place, again, this is not, this is futile, right? So like if they start barking at me, that is, it's not necessarily futile because I didn't get to the dinner, but it's less effective because I'm in Dodge, right? Less effective if I, if they fuss and fuss and then they settle and then I feed them, then I might actually build that chain. We want to stay away from that. So instead I'm just paying attention. They're being calm. Great. I'm going to go feed them. Same with like, I might be working and it's getting close to time for me to take a break. And I know that I'm going to take the dogs out when I take a break. If I'm getting close to that break and they're all being perfect and they're sleeping and they're resting and they're being calm, I'm going to take that break and take them outside. If it gets to my break and I've got somebody fussing and whining or barking out the front door or just generally speaking, being a naughty dog, I'm not going to take my break or I might take it, but do something else and I will take them out when they are settled. So that is subtle access to desired resources when the behaviors look the way that I want them to look. And I'm gonna kind of close with a story about a behavior that I trained with, you know, pretty subtle reinforcement application and how it backfired and how I'm fixing it. (laughs) So I have a desired behavior for my off-leash hikes, which is that when my dogs find themselves at a trail junction, I want them to wait for me there. I don't want them to continue down the path. I don't want them to turn. I want them to wait for me there. Obvious reasons for this, right? I want to know where they went 
right? If I get to a junction and I don't see dogs, I'm like, okay, where, where'd y'all go? I don't want to turn and have them have turned the other way, right? So I want them to wait for me at, at junctions. I shaped this. When I decided to, I shaped it quickly in a matter of just a couple of walks. And in fact, what inspired me to do this, it was always just kind of a thing. I would recall them at junctions. Like I would just call them, make sure I had a head count, and then I would turn. And I decided to teach them to just wait for me because the oldest dog went deaf and I wanted him to wait for me because he couldn't hear my recall. So I, you know, he's slow moving, like he's not gonna get too far from me, but he could turn the wrong way and not hear me. So he's who I decided to do this for. And I just did it by deciding we would have junction cookies. So anytime I was at a trail junction, I would just stop and I wouldn't recall, I would just stop and start feeding everyone. And once everybody had been fed, you know, and basically anybody who had run off and hadn't stopped would notice that I was feeding the, the other dogs and come over. I would feed everyone and then we would go down whatever side. Here's my mistake is that I've trained my dogs that the cue this way means to follow me because I'm turning. And that's like, you know, maybe I might turn around. I might do a 180. I might cut off into a field like that's not a junction, but I might see something coming I don't want to deal with and cut off into the woods or cut off into a field, etc. So I've taught them that this way means to follow me. I also use it when they're on leash because I don't like to use leash pressure to tell them to follow me. That's another, that's another story. So then what started to happen is that particularly my border collie Felix started to become quite intense about trail junctions. Not cookie intense because all the dogs would wait and they'd wait like happily but calmly. Like they're not freaking out, but they're just like, ooh, it's cookie time. And I'm never super far behind them or they might start getting frustrated and barking and like, hey, hey lady, it's cookie, it's cookie junction time. But we tend to be pretty close to each other. So that wasn't an issue. But I was, I was starting to notice Felix would be at a junction, crouched, very intense, like ears pinned, salivating. He doesn't want a, a junction cookie anymore. And y'all, this happened so fast that I just one day was like, where is he? And I saw him at a junction doing this. He had sprinted ahead to the junction because he knew we were coming to it so that he could wait. And what was he waiting for? He was waiting for me to say this way. He was waiting for me and this is your PSA that border collies are not right in the head and you don't get any of them. He's waiting for me to say this way so that he could sprint down the trail the way that I said. Like he just, he wanted to be told to go away, to go one of the directions so that he could just run down the trail. <laughs> and so I realized that, you know, my subtle application of reinforcement, which was just that I coincidentally happened to be feeding cookies every time there was a junction did build the behavior that I wanted in most of my dogs. And it built a behavior I don't want in one of my dogs. And I really don't want it because he gets really intense and starts barking and he might snap at another dog. He's so intense about this trail junction. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a problem, but it is a problem. <laughs> so the way that I'm fixing it is I have removed the reinforcement that he wants, which is the cue this way. And instead of just junction cookies, we're now having a junction scatter. As everybody is consuming this big scatter, I simply start walking the way that I wanna go. So now there is no cue, there is no big release, there's no like shot of a cannon down the trail that I wanna go down. 
it's a little more subtle. I'm having some thought, a little bit of, you know, carryover that he's kind of like, wait, 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 you didn't say it. Can we, can we get really excited? I just tell him, oh, sorry, buddy, you know, no. And I might pet him or I might tell him he's cute or I might give him another scatter, but I'm not saying those words. And that's about understanding reinforcement. So I wouldn't have been able to remove the cue this way if I didn't understand that what was reinforcing that behavior was that cue and that the entire reward sequence was being rewarded. So the weight, the crouch, the growing of anticipation, the intensity, and the sprint down the trail all being reinforced. So I got to back way up, change what reinforcer I'm delivering, change the entire circumstance so that I can get rid of that undesired behavior. So if you understand reinforcement and you you think about it and you, you know, because it doesn't make that much sense that he would get that intense about a piece of food when he's kind of who he is. That's how I understand it's not about the food. It's about sprinting down the trail. And therefore it's about my cue to sprint down the trail, which was never an intentional cue. And he still, if I say this way, he doesn't necessarily sprint past me if he hasn't had that moment of anticipation build up. Like if I just turn around and say this way, he just follows me. So removing that cue at that moment has been instrumental, but I did just start it and I'll let you guys know how it goes. Above all though, because when I started to understand this, it started to freak me out. And I started to really freak out about when my dogs were accessing reinforcement and what were they doing right when they did. And oh my God, can I control everything? And I want to stress not to freak out. I want to stress that this is about getting curious. This is about experimenting and being curious about where reinforcement is flowing, why behavior is getting stronger or weakening, and just trying different things and observing and being a curious learner about these processes. That's what I want to encourage. Not freaking out, not getting obsessive or too controlling about it. Instead, just kind of tap into that curiosity when you start to feel controlling. It will serve you. It will serve you better. All right, and let's dive into some Patreon questions. The first one is really appropriate for this episode. It comes from Aaliyah who writes, I would love some advice on how to reward and reinforce settling without creating more arousal due to food. My lab is just a baby at 14 weeks, but I'm trying to reinforce anytime he can settle on his bed. Generally, he will only rest if we enforce naps in his playpen. But if I toss a piece of kibble on his bed, even softly and without marking, it ends any calmness. Besides a calm voice and petting, what other ways can I reinforce this? Thank you. Love the podcast. Went back and listened to all the puppy episodes. So Aaliyah, first of all, congratulations on your puppy. Um, And this, I hope that this episode helped you, but let's talk about some specifics. You're correct. Your reinforcer is not working for you. So using food to reinforce calmness for a dog who gets excited about food isn't going to work. And you're noticing that already. What I would like to posit is that the actual act of relaxing in a calm space and a soft space and a nice place to be when one is a little bit tired reinforces that settling piece. And that's kind of the cornerstone of my happy crating program. And I do hope that you will um, grab happy crating if you don't already have it. Everything is at the Cog Dog Classroom, which is linked in the show notes. And happy crating really teaches you to arrange antecedents so that the dog happens to be settled in their X-Pen or in their crate. And your puppy is a tiny baby and is probably a little bit too young to settle outside of the crate if it's not happening for you. If it is happening for you, just 
look at him and observe that it's happening and be excited about it. You don't need to feed him food necessarily. This is a misunderstanding of reinforcement that I left out of this episode, which is believing that all the reinforcement should come from us rather than understanding that there are reinforcement processes at play all the time. If he settles sometimes, then that behavior has been reinforced. And if he is settling better and better and more and more, then it is being reinforced, whether you're feeding it with food or not. So I do really encourage happy crating. I also really encourage teenage tyrants, which is another course that I have available because I also teach a settling behavior without using food in that class. And that has to do with kind of not giving the dog very many other options. And again, arranging those antecedents just like in happy creating so that they are likely to settle. So think about your antecedents, think about your setups, think about what encourages the behavior rather than thinking about what reinforces this behavior. And I think you will be on track. The next one comes from Annalise. Annalise first says, thanks again for making this great podcast. I really enjoy it. And thank you so much. That means a lot to me. She goes on to write, in your experience, have you seen many dogs who go on daily behavior slash anxiety meds transition off them later after successfully working through a behavior modification plan? Of course, each dog and situation is individual and a veterinary behaviorist should assess this. But I'm curious to ask what you've noticed in your community. In all the reactive dog groups I'm in online, the conversation about this is generally focused on the earlier part of the dog's reactivity journey and if meds should be explored, but it's rare that I've seen folks follow up later when they're in a better spot to hear if meds are still part of the plan. So Annalise, as you mentioned, this is not my wheelhouse, veterinary behaviorist or a veterinarian who is well-versed in behavior meds is really who needs to be on your team helping you decide about meds. For my clientele and my personal dogs, there have been cases where the dog needed to stay on meds indefinitely, and there have been cases where they didn't and they were easy to wean off. My purely anecdotal experience is that if they're on the meds for a really long length of time, it's sometimes harder to get them off. And I also, I'm pro-meds. Like, they don't need to ever get off the meds as far as I'm concerned, if the meds are really helping them. And if their circumstances can't change, so like if they're on meds because their circumstances are too hard for them, like they're a reactive dog and they live in an apartment and they're gonna deal with triggers every single day, then those meds are gonna relieve suffering in that dog every single day for the rest of its life and therefore they should be on board every single day for the rest of their life. Again, with veterinary approval. If though your dog's a sport dog, you wanna go compete on the world team, they can't be on those meds to be on the world team. So that might be a primary goal that you discuss with that veterinary behaviorist and head for that goal as quickly as you can. So that's my experience. Again, not a veterinarian, but I think that if the person has interest or a real reason to get the dog off the drugs, then that needs to be a part of the discussion with the veterinary team from day one so that that's kind of understood as a primary goal. And I don't think it always needs to be. And next from Dinah, who writes, any thoughts on how retraining a behavior that has broken down is or should be approached differently or thought of differently from training it for the first time? Given that it is part of a context they know well and will be returning to, like there are some easy examples, start line, running, or stop contact, what do we need to know or understand about the dog's perspective going back to the drawing board? So retraining sucks (laughs) is what you need to know. (laughs) Sorry, Dinah. Retraining, I've done it on a few behaviors. It's never going to be as good as doing it right the first time. That is true. What you want to think about is how can I make the cues that are not going to go away? So like the dog walk itself 
if we're talking about like a running dog walk or a stopped contact or whatever. How do I make the cue that's not going away part of this retrain process early with a high success rate? So meaning if I have trained my dog a new contact behavior and I have taught that on the flat or maybe on a foundational piece of equipment like a board, when I put the dog back on that true piece of equipment, I have a high risk of reverting back to the norm of, to the original behavior. And I want to put in place antecedent arrangement, props, whatever, reinforcer strategies, whatever I need to do to try to avoid practicing the old behavior. So now when we're retraining, we need to think really, really hard about not practicing the old behavior, not just rehearsing the new behavior. We want to rehearse the new behavior, rehearse the new behavior, rehearse the new behavior, and be sure that every fourth or fifth attempt is not practicing the old one. And of course, don't go into situations where you have no control, wink, wink, trials, until things look really good and you have not seen that other behavior for a very long time. Next is from Lauren who writes, what is your experience with teaching loose leash walking when there are multiple people in the house holding onto the leash? Some family members allow the dog to pull, but I do not. And I'm working very hard on this. I've taken your teenage tyrants course and I'm implementing your strategies there. I find that my progress is decent until another family member walks the dog. And then when I walk him next, it takes some time to reestablish what we've worked on. Is it really possible to have loose leash walking behavior with some family members and pulling allowed walking with others? Is my slow progress likely due to that? I'm exploring all possibilities, including that I'm being dishonest with myself and my ability to be clear, have clean reinforcement delivery and not asking him for more than he can offer me, etc. So Lauren, yes, it's possible. I do it all the time. Every, any dog that's attached to me by a leash very quickly learns that pulling is not going to work out for them. And they tend not to forget, even though most people do allow a lot more pulling than I do in their dogs. However, in your situation, I would encourage you to have all other family members be using uh, no-pull equipment. So they should be using a front connection harness, something like that, that is not going to allow the dog to pull and also doesn't doesn't insist that they have to train and then you should use whatever the equipment is that your goal is unless you don't want to train on that outing and then you can also use that other equipment so an equipment difference is very very helpful it is possible that this is part of your stagnation and so I would switch up the equipment, even if it's two different harnesses, like even if you want to walk the dog on a front connection harness, but not allow pulling, then they can use a different front connection harness that allows pulling. Like dogs are, they're pretty good at recognizing what equipment they're wearing. Good luck. Yes, it's possible. Keep trying. And that's it for this week. Thanks everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.